Welcome to Orchestrated Relationships, a podcast studying relational value. I'm David Homan, your host. Years ago, I formed a community of people called Connectors, people who have an innate ability to build and maintain authentic relationships across their personal and professional lives and who thrive on making connections. The community was formed out of a need to develop a system and a methodology to help relational value be valued. And the most effective way I've found so far is to champion someone else which is why I have in front of me the incredible Natalie Molina Nino. Thank you so much for joining, Natalie. Thank you for inviting me. You know, you're one of my favorite people, so the answer is always going to be yes. Well, you are, and your bio you gave me just doesn't do you justice, but I'll just make it as exciting as I can. You're an entrepreneur, an author, <laughs> and a builder capitalist, investing at the intersection of gender and climate. As a Latina daughter of immigrants who frequently speaks out and fights for racial justice, you do everything through an anti-racist lens that prioritizes outcomes over optics. And I'd say, you know, knowing you in person like so long now, this idea of outcomes over has such a heavy weight in terms of what we need in this world, because it's not about just having a course correct to make things seem good. They actually need to be good because we see change happen. And you are an absolute firebrand at making sure that people understand the difference between those two. So with that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about one of the projects you're focused on, your passion for it, and how it can impact others? Yeah, well, um, you know, you're catching me uh, in July of 2020, right? We we just yesterday uh, marked the 100 days from the coming presidential election. And one of the projects that has kind of out of nowhere taken over my life recently. Um, And it's funny because in the last few weeks, this has happened in the last few months, I should say, this has happened uh, once before. And that was, you know, back in April, my entire life was derailed because of the federal stimulus and the fact that many of us looked at it and very clearly saw how black and brown owned businesses were going to be locked out. And it, it was catastrophic. We thought it would be catastrophic and sure enough it was because now we have um, upwards of 50% of black and Latinx businesses going out of business. And so similar to that, um, I feel like I'm sort of minding my own business, doing my thing. Um, and I hear about this case, this case, right. And the fact that amendment four passed in Florida, which allowed formerly incarcerated people, the right to vote. It was a huge civil rights victory, probably, you know, among the biggest in my lifetime. Millions of people that were previously disenfranchised now have the ability to vote. Um, but the governor of Florida um, found a loophole that effectively uh, forced people to have to pay fees and fines in order to be able to pay, which is effectively a, a poll tax. And um, it went to the Supreme Court. Uh, they reverted to the previous uh, courts, which just means that even if this is overturned, it will be months before they get their day in court, which likely means that they are all going to be missing um, the next election. And so uh, I, um, through community, um, was able to meet the plaintiff in this SCOTUS case, uh, an amazing gentleman by the name of Desmond Mead, um, who is behind getting Amendment 4 passed. And we asked him, like, what, what can be done, right? And his answer was brilliant. And he had, as an operator for me, this is magic, right? He had spreadsheets and data and all this analysis to show that, um, you know, in fact, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people who um, very easily could vote because those fees and those fines are, are, are not insurmountable. Um, if you take 
you know, as with the 80-20 rule, right? About 80% and you remove all the outliers of the people who maybe have massive fees, what you're left with is an average fee of, you know, in some cases, just a hundred, a couple hundred, depending on what district you're looking at. Um, and that's eminently solvable, certainly between now and October 5th, when the uh, registration, voter registration deadline comes. So um, to answer your question, I'm working very closely with Desmond Mead, who just enlisted everyone from the Magic uh, basketball team to LeBron James to, of course, John Legend, who was already involved. And now I believe that he's uh, recruiting a whole bunch of others that will be announced in the coming days to do two things. One, to get people excited about funding this fines and fees fund, which essentially allows Desmond and his team to directly, so not through the individual, but directly through the court system, pay people's fees and fines so that then they can be cleared to vote in November. Um, but also to um, raise awareness. Desmond made this amazing analogy of Juneteenth, right, where you had um, technically formally enslaved individuals in Texas who had no idea that they had been freed um, two years earlier. And he's saying, um, you know, we have a similar situation where there are people in Florida who do not know that a law has been passed allowing them to vote and may not even have fees or fines and may be fully able to vote in November and just are not aware. And so there has to be some work to create that awareness as well. Yeah. As a native Floridian who had to give up my Florida voting rights to get New Jersey driver's insurance, anything I can oh, do no. support this. Um, I proudly voted in Florida as long as I could while I was in college and grad school until the point where I needed to drive my children safely to play dates and you need insurance <laughs> yeah. for it. New Jersey said, well, um, you need to be a New Jersey resident and yeah. get a driver's license. Um, well, you hold, you held out pretty long. I, I did. I did. I did. But I lived through when Nader had 3000 votes in 2000 in Alachua County where I grew up. And if those 3000 votes had voted out of need, um, for Gore, we would have had a much different trajectory of this country. And to look at the margins in Florida and to think that there are over, what, a million three potential voters mm-hmm. who, on yep. average, right, for a couple hundred dollars, I mean, there was analysis um, in Obama's first election that um, private funders on the Republican side spend an average of $964 or so per person per vote. Per vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is a way to not change the vote, but to empower the person to find their own voice, which is a big difference. Totally. And it's a, Amendment 4 in Florida was passed overwhelmingly, largely because it was a bipartisan um, level of support that was able to be achieved, right? Because this is, this is about just getting people who are disenfranchised the opportunity to vote, right? And um, yeah, this is, this is huge. And it's... Um, it's taken over my life right now. And hopefully, you know, if we continue to have the traction that we have, it'll be what I do for the next couple of months, at least until October 5th. Right. Um, because I think you're right. I think, you know, um, Desmond made a point. He's like in, in his lifetime, um, no president has won without Florida. So, you know, Florida, um, like it or not is at the epicenter of this and it's going to be really important. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's an incredible project and it's obviously such a clear parallel for those that, who I hope are most of my listeners want a more just return to a civil society than what we have now. Mm. Um, candidates aside, 
and being able to empower people to vote in their state and not feel marginalized but empowered is probably worth every penny that people could give to candidates because there's very little you can do to actually give to support people using their democratic voice in the right way. Yeah. And it's a long-term solution, right? I mean, this is not just about this election. This is about re-enfranchising people who we have intentionally locked out. And so I, I don't, by the way, use the word empower because I worry that um, if you think about the word and what it suggests, it suggests that there is power elsewhere and that somebody is granting it to someone. And I feel that everybody is already, and you know, the power is in within every individual. What we have, unfortunately, are systems that actively, you know, take that power away or actively undermine it. And this is a perfect example of that, right? So we're going to get out of the way and let people do uh, what they have, you know, the right to do. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll qualify that. The reason I use the term empower now when I used to not was because mm-hmm. of the incredible book that Jeremy Hyman's co-wrote called New Power. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, um, and I'm greatly paraphrasing this, so it's absolutely <laughs> worth a read. Um, but we lived in a world of castles of currency where power was based on something finite that was controlled land based Mm -hmm. and then economy based. And now we live in a world where a lot of people don't realize power is in the current and there's no way to stop a current. You can only ride it or try to shape it. Mm -hmm. And that's what the me too movement proved. That's what everything around, um, the new way that women are have had a voice that has had great leverage now and will continue to. And mm-hmm. I would say, you know, the, this issue just happens to coincide with which, with what I hope to be one of the election issues, if not the for November, which mm-hmm. is social and financial justice. Mm-hmm. And this idea that the power lies in these voters mm-hmm. And if they know they can vote and they're able to legally vote, what does their voice do to yeah. create a better path so that everyone who's after them can see more role models that look like them and the power of a vote, which um, yeah. is constantly something that people try to squash and people try to limit because unfortunately for some, the demographics will just change and the world will become more balanced in terms of race and in terms of that uh, power base. And I, I am somebody yeah. who, as an advocate for you, love all of the projects and, the, and champion your work as somebody who works for others. So thank you for that. Of course. It's kind of hard once you see these systems. Not to, It's hard to unsee them, right, and, and to do nothing. So I was thinking about um, the personal share I wanted to, to make of you, because I've actually told the story very differently when I told it anecdotally. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't realize how early on I was somebody who was raised by very liberal, progressive parents um, in a community in Florida where um, mm-hmm. it was incredibly split. And I went to mm-hmm. a high school uh, where the International Baccalaureate Program brought majority of the white people there not all, but, but a lot. And then the rest of the community was just a different part of the town that people didn't want to drive to. Mm. And, um, the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we actually, it actually was on the wrong side of the tracks. Um, cause the town used to be a big, um, train depot for people to kill hogs and send pigs everywhere. 
because it used to be called Hogstown before it became Gainesville, where I grew up. Um, but I was part of an amazing youth leadership group. And one of the most charismatic, brilliant friends I had in that, named McCleet, and I were both talking about which one of us, you know, would run for president of this organization. Hmm. And to be honest, I wasn't at that point ready to be a leader, but something in me just said, you know, I'd rather, um, I'd rather be in a situation where I could run something that matters to me, which was running a national health conference for the March of Dimes from a youth mm-hmm. perspective. And that she was somebody who really was the right characteristic. And I didn't want to run. It was something I would have gladly voted for her. She's an Ethiopian woman. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that stepping back from that was as powerful a choice as maybe now uh, of being in a situation where I've made a concerted effort in my life to be somebody for what I think my voice is the voice that should be heard to make sure other people hear it with them. But when I can be in a situation where other people should be heard because they are right and I am right to support them to do so. And I think it's a, a lesson, especially in this world we live in now where people are afraid to have a voice for other people because they're afraid to admit that what they might have been doing before wasn't exactly what the world needed. But I think that there's yeah. no there's no other way than to course correct and go, when we hear each other and we figure out who's the right person, it shouldn't be based on a demographic or an assumption of what is a leader. It should be based mm-hmm. on whose voices reach the furthest and resonate the most. And that's why as somebody who has built a community that is extremely diverse compared to my own demographic, I'm really proud to have you part of that. Um, as somebody who's been on the other side of that, um, what have you seen in terms of uh, the way people look at leadership, the way people look at connectivity and what they assume from you as part of that? Yeah. Um, you know, you said you know, what matters is the voice that resonates the most and that's going to reach the sort of furthest, right? Um, I think that that's where we maybe want to get eventually, but I think one of the challenges today, right, is that um, if you have an entire industry, like say tech, or you have an entire industry, like say finance, and because I'm a masochist, I've been in both, um, it's pretty clear that you know, there's data, there's research, right? Um, that the white male voice, because it's a pretty homogeneous community, right? is probably going to be the one that resonates the most and goes the furthest. So I guess I would push back on that criteria because I think that sometimes change um, requires these tough decisions that people might say go against the grain, don't resonate with the community that push the envelope and make people a little uncomfortable. Um, but I think that that's what's needed. And I think sometimes those first steps are a little bit painful and uncomfortable for folks. Um, I can't remember the quote, right? But for somebody who has always experienced privilege, fairness looks like inequality or fairness looks like I can't, I'm butchering the, the quote now. Um, but I think those uncomfortable moments, um, that's what we're in the thick of right now. As a, as a country, um, and I can only hope that um, you know 
people's good intentions will become louder and louder because I think that they're just as there are quietly apathetic people who stand by and are complicit in racism and sexism and all forms of bigotry. I also think that there's a lot of quiet people who are coming into their own and who are speaking up maybe for the first time and embracing some of these uncomfortable moments for the first time because they realize that their silence is, um, is really deadly, especially when you have people putting their bodies on the line on the streets just for the right to exist and to drive and to shop or most recently, right. Um, to go to the store and buy your son a bicycle at Walmart without being arrested and hogtied. Um, you know, that's what people are putting their bodies on the line for. And I, I think that people like you who are coming at it from the right place, um, are starting to navigate almost, I think when I hear what you just said, what are the tactics? What are the strategies? What are the tools at my disposal, right? That I can make the best use of. And I think that's good. I think those are good conversations to have. So when you build relationships, and, and I thank you for that, and, and, you, and you have these, obviously, a multitude of passions and things you've been incredibly infected with, um, how do you thread that line of seeing where somebody wants to go and being able to be patient enough to get them there or knowing that where they need to go isn't a place where you can help them yet. Hmm. That's a tough question, especially for somebody who is like us where I, you know, there's a chapter in Keith Barazzi's book uh, about super connectors and I'm in it. <laughs> like I am definitely a connector. That's what I love to do. I can't help myself. But if anything, I think the pandemic has really driven home to me that there is a big difference between that inner circle of people who are truly my friends and who I am truly invested in walking in this life with, right? And then there's the people outside of that circle. And it can be tough. It can be really tough when you are a connector the way I am to make that delineation. But in the question that you asked, that delineation becomes really essential. Right. Um, and the, the truth is, um, while much of my work is broad in nature, when I'm on MSNBC advocating for black and brown owned businesses in the federal stimulus conversation, I'm clearly invested in broadly getting my message out and convincing people that this is an important thing that we should be paying attention to. Right. So clearly I am expending energy with perfect strangers. Right. But when it comes to my own sort of quality of life, I think I've really made, um, the decision that my quality of life is about valuing my inner circle. Um, and my inner circle are probably the only people for whom it's valuable and for whom I will invest, say, getting them to that place. Um, if I see that there's a disconnect in some view or maybe a lack of understanding about something beyond that pretty small inner circle of people, I'm going to inform people where to go. I'm going to show them resources of places to research or connect with. I'm going to send them on their way to the extent that I can, but I'm not going to impact my quality of life for people who in 2020 have not yet quite gotten to that place where they think that Black Lives Matter or that caging children on the border is not a good idea and it's not a human rights violation or any of these things. They're sort of a baseline and that's it. Okay, and, and there's a difference of somebody becoming more um, aware from being silent 
and people who made a choice to be silent because it didn't affect them. And I think what I've seen you do as, as a valuable connector in office, often the fact that some of my dearest inner circle friends came because of you, um, that there's a lot in being able to value your circle and then use your extensive, extensive network to help that mm-hmm. inner circle. And that's why you build relationships beyond the ones you have the time for. Um, so it's true. My friends like you make me look like I am, I've got my finger in 50 different things or like, you know, my, my name is on probably a hundred different initiatives that in true fact of reality, I should not be taking credit for, but we have this network of people who all kind of conspire for good things. And it makes it certainly look like, you know, the tentacles are far wider reaching than they are, but I love it. That's what, that was, that's what a group of friends hopefully does is they are able to amplify your work. And when you can't be there, they can be your proxies and I'll be theirs. And um, hopefully it accelerates and amplifies everybody's good work. That is the goal. Uh, So I always like to end these with a quote. And for you, I specifically chose a white male to tell you as my favorite poet out of irony, but I mean, it's actually, it's a well-known quote from a very well-known poet, but I, but I always look at this in terms of where there's insight to leave one's life by. So mine's from Robert Frost and we know two roads diverge. Um, and it, and it always ends with, and I took the least traveled and that has made all the difference. And I think about how that silence we spoke about, that's the well-traveled path. That's, that's trotting down a path everyone else goes down, and therefore it's okay to be silent because everyone else did it. And when I'm hiking, I've now taught my kids because, you know, during Corona when there's no playgrounds, you can go on nature hikes. And my six-year-old mm-hmm. loves them and then hates us at the same time for doing it. <laughs> um, the three-year-old, as long as he can throw rocks, he's fine. Um, <laughs> but I always try to take that less-traveled road. I always want to be able to be the one that goes down and sees things that other people didn't see as much because maybe there's more beauty in it. Maybe there's something that isn't just traveling to the national landmarks of the world. And maybe there's something to see that can be a moment that's really just for you because of it. So that's, that's how I always look at the paths and where I've headed and where I continue to head and not to do something that's normal, but to do something that is less traveled, but thereby hopefully more effective. Yeah. I, I, my thought about that is just that, um, I think that undersells your secret sauce. And that is that you definitely are somebody who clearly takes the road less, less traveled, but you also, um, walk in the world with a sort of earnestness and a kindness that is, um, very easy to spot. And it's why, um, as much as I appreciate that quote, I also think it's funny that you're probably one of the only white men in my life who I have found myself um, kind of going to bat for and defending if anybody says anything I don't like. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're we live in a world where not that many white men need defending. Um, and I just think that that's because I appreciate that what you do apart from taking the road less traveled is that you do it with um, a sort of deep appreciation for human beings that, and it just, it comes out of your pores. There's this kindness that um, I think is unfortunately not as ubiquitous as it should be. And so it should be valued and uh, protected, especially among our friends. Well, I appreciate that. Um, 
my belief is when you take the road less traveled and you bring everyone else along it, it becomes the road everyone should have been down. <laughs> and they just should have been shouldn't have been docile like sheep. Um, so before we end, and I'm really grateful for you being part of this. Um, any quote that you live by that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, lately I've been very uh, enamored with this one quote from Alice Walker. Um, and I actually heard it from the first time because of Cory Booker um, at his talk at Nexus, Nexus USA in D.C. And I was really impressed both with the fact that it what he quoted, by the way, was the entire paragraph. What I'm going to quote is the last two sentences because I'm not quite as good as Cory Booker. Um, but it's Alice Walker, and she says, The real revolution is always concerned with the least glamorous stuff, with raising a reading level from second grade to third, with simplifying history and writing it down or reciting it for the old folks, with helping illiterates fill out a food stamps form, for they must eat, revolution or not. And, yeah, I, I love this because... Um, while in the last, you know, maybe a couple of years of my life, certainly since I published my book, I have been more visible. Um, the reality is, is I'm much, I am most comfortable being in the pit crew, right? And, and letting that race car driver cross the finish line, knowing that I'm the one that put the gasoline in and made sure that everything was running as it should. And I think that that's kind of what this message is, right? It's that you can be the person putting your body on the line on the streets. I have an 87-year-old high-risk grandmother who does not know that she has lung cancer yet. And so there's a limitation right in this moment of just how much I can put my body on the line on the street. But I can do these other things, right? And, and these other things are, are critical because, you know, they must eat, revolution or not. And I think that that's how I navigate the current moment. And it's how... I hope others do too, because you you can't sit this one out. There are many ways to be a part of what's happening, um, and they don't all look exactly the same way. I appreciate that so much. I mean, small step, steps are actionable. Big steps people don't think they can accomplish. Mm -hmm. I think our collective hope will be the next time we hear Cory Booker quote that, he'll add a line, which goes, <laughs> and just get people the right to choose to vote in Florida as yes. an actionable small step. Um, so <sighs> thank you so much for all of the work you do for our friendship and for being on this to talk about how we build relationships and how we value each other and how that can really support the work that so many of the people around us do. So I'm so grateful for you being part of this, the latest of edition of the Corona version of orchestrated relationships. <laughs> I'm grateful to be invited. Uh, with that, um, Thank you so much to everyone listening, and thank you, Natalie. Thank you. On the next podcast of Orchestrated Relationships, stay tuned for Ari Afsar, who discusses the power of voice in elevating women and supporting those most in need. We'll close with my work rest for String Step 10 and percussion. Mm -hmm.